0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. We're really focused on taking that gospel to our community. We're going to attract some unsavory people, some people that very well might make you uncomfortable to interact with them, to be around, because when the community of redemption is truly centered on Christ, which is what we want our community focused and founded on, we will see the lost with love, not with fear. We'll see them with kindness and compassion, with humility, not with with pride. So community groups at Redemption Church, we're, we're going to be launching those on August 19th when we publicly launch as a congregation. And we pray that in a lot of ways, these community groups would be the front lines of our local missions efforts in the city of Wilson. Discipleship and missions go together. And as I've read one pastor right, here's, here's what he had to say. He said in my experience people are often attracted to the Christian community before they are attracted to the Christian message. If a believing community is as persuasive, excuse me, if a believing community is a persuasive apologetic for the gospel, then people need to be included to see that apologetic at work. People often tell me, he writes, how they have tried telling their unbelieving friends about Jesus, but they do not seem interested. So they want to know what to do next. My answer is to find ways of introducing them to the Christian community. The life of the Christian community provokes a response. What he's saying there is that a lot of times people just aren't interested in hearing about Jesus. But as they see the people of Jesus in community, loving, caring, serving one another, that witness provides powerful apologetic to be able to say, well, what is this Jesus thing really all about? If you're living your life in this way and this kindness and this humility and this love, this is is unusual, this is strange, this is weird, this is otherworldly. And their ears perk up and they want to hear about this Christ that forms this type of community, this type of church. So one of the ways we will reach our community here at Redemption Church is by encouraging you to introduce your unbelieving friends to the people in this room, bringing them into the community of redemption, letting letting them witness it and see it in action. And an easy way to do that is to simply invite people to your community group as it's formed. But But here's the rub as we think about community and mission in the church the church's community will either illuminate the gospel or obscure the gospel. It'll illuminate the gospel, making it clear, making it easy to see, or if the church's community is toxic, it'll actually obscure or distort the gospel. So if our community at Redemption Church is defined by elitism, pride, self-righteousness, then no one's going to listen to the gospel that we proclaim. However, if our community is defined by sacrifice, service, humility, love, grace, then people will be eager to listen to the gospel we proclaim. You see, we live in a culture that is fragmented, that is lonely, that is isolated. And our world today, I'm convinced more than ever, hungers for authenticity and for vulnerability to be both known fully, and accepted truly. How hard is that to find? And only the gospel solves this crisis. As Christ saves us, he binds us to a community called the church. So therefore, not only is community and discipleship inseparable, community and mission are inseparable. They go together. So if we hope to develop the type of community at Redemption Church, and I hope I'm not the only one that feels this way. We want to be a community on mission. We want to see the lost one to our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to be that type of community, then we have to carefully examine our own hearts because we must become a community shaped by gospel love in the same manner of Christ Jesus himself. And as we think about that, we're going to look here at Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. And in this scene, Jesus is invited to a fancy dinner party held by a prestigious Pharisee, only to have it interrupted by a scandalous and weeping woman. And in this episode of the life of Christ, we see there's really three main actors in this narrative here, don't we? That And that those three actors are going to frame the structure of the sermon this morning. We see the woman, we see the Pharisee, and we see the Savior. So let's consider the, the first one of those. And as we walk through this sermon together, let me encourage you to examine your own heart as we discuss these three individuals in our passage today. And I want you to, to carefully examine your own heart and, and think about, with the Spirit's help, which one am I most like? Which one am I most like? Am I most like the woman in this account? Am I more like the Pharisee? Or am I more like the Savior? So let's let's first think through this woman in verse 36 to 38, the opening of this passage. So imagine for a second, you are being invited somewhere in town to a formal dinner. It's a fancy affair. And at that dinner, there's going to be a special guest of honor and an up and coming teacher that that everybody's talking about that, that again, is in high demand and, and he's going to be there and you're going to get to have dinner with him. And it's a special gathering. Right? Not anybody can just come to this dinner. This is, this is a gathering for the greatest minds of the area to gather to discuss the greatest issues facing society. And you got an invitation to come to this party. Again, this is fantasy, sorry. (laughs) Some of you might not have actually been invited. That's all right. We wouldn't, probably none of us. But imagine you're invited. so you arrive at this gigantic house. You come, you show up for this dinner party. Everything is perfect. The food is exquisite. The conversation is stimulating. And all of a sudden, the doorbell rings and the host goes and grabs the door. And before the the host can even get to the door, the woman, a woman barges in. A woman dressed in a a low-cut blouse and mini skirt she looks like she, she works on a street corner and she runs into the home and she looks frantically for that guest of honor. I got to see him. And when she finds him, she takes this expensive oil and begins to massage the guest in a rather sensual way. And everyone at this table begins to give each other strange looks. What is going on here? And you think, who is this woman and why is she doing this and what is she doing here? And, and how is our guest of honor going to respond to this type of treatment? unusually, the guest of honor doesn't yell at the woman, doesn't disrespect her. In fact, he doesn't stop her at all. And the guest of honor almost looks pleased by what she is doing. And as you're watching, you begin to notice that this woman is actually crying, sobbing, in fact, on the floor. Now, that is a a bizarre scene. It's taboo. It's provocative. It's erotic. It's even scandalous. I mean, what would you do in this situation if you were at this dinner party? What would you think about the teacher? What would you think about the woman? How would you expect this respected teacher to respond? And this type of scene is exactly what we see unfold here in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following. And based off of Luke's description here, as he frames this dinner party, we see that this dinner seems to be based on the Greek symposium. So what is a symposium? Well, a symposium was a a formal dinner party centered around intellectual discussion. So again, this is the way it worked. A wise and respected host would invite over all of his upper-class, wealthy, rich friends that he was trying to impress, and he would find an important guest who would be the focal point of that dinner party, someone who would be the the provocateur of the, the conversation, and they would sit around with their fancy drinks and fancy food and, and talk. So the host would, would seek to impress his friends with the quality of the guest that came. And so at this dinner party, they would recline, as they did back then, at the table, and they would lie down on their sides, and they would begin to eat, and then the intellectual dialogue would begin. You see, a symposium in those days, this was a formal affair. It was an elite affair. It was a prestigious affair. And only the best and the brightest were invited to symposiums. And this was no place for commoners, for ordinary people. This was definitely not a place for a lady of the night. But yet Jesus accepts this invitation to come to Simon, the Pharisee's house. He comes to this symposium. And, and I, was just, I was studying this passage this week. I thought about it for a second. and I was almost surprised that Jesus would even accept this sort of invitation. You know, throughout his life, as we read the gospel, Jesus always speaks quite harshly, firmly to the Pharisees, some firm rebukes. But, you know, as Jesus does that, he he speaks firmly and harshly to get their attention. He loves them. He's, He's hoping that his firm words would awaken them from their religious slumber and awaken them to their need for Christ, for salvation. And even though the Pharisees never really received his message, and even though the Pharisees were ultimately the ones behind the conspiracy to kill him, Here we see Jesus at a party as a missionary to the upper class. He's not neglecting these people, the Pharisees. Even though they did not receive him, Jesus nevertheless tried to reach them. And even though they detested him, Jesus nevertheless loved them. And I think, again, quick observation, we learn that Jesus is the Savior of all people. All people. He ministered to the poor as well as to the rich to the receptive as well, the hostile. However, Jesus's kingdom really subverts and and ruptures the values of society. That's one of the reasons why Jesus was such a polarizing figure. Because Jesus's kingdom collapses the hierarchical class distinctions that continue to dominate our society to this day. He demolishes them. And at this dinner party, we see Jesus demolish those boundaries. And it's awkward. Weird. And through that awkwardness, people's hearts are truly exposed. And in New Testament times, wealthy homes tended to have a semi-public area of the house. And for a party like this, there was, there was the, that section was probably filled up with people standing in the street kind of looking into the house, hoping they could maybe pick up a little bit of the conversation and dialogue of what's taking place inside. And of course, with all the commotion going on about Jesus at this time, I'm sure there was a a lot of people curious, hoping they would see something, hear something. So I'm sure there were people gathered all around this house, kind of watching, peering into this dinner, hoping they could overhear. And though it was a private dinner, again, the public had great interest in what was going on. And so knowing this, it's kind of easy for us to see how this sinful woman ended up at this dinner party. She was probably standing in the public area, and and she just kind of breaks social protocol by interrupting the dinner. And all we're told about this woman, the only description Luke gives us, is that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner, who was a sinner. Not sure exactly what this means. This probably means that she was known for being a prostitute or at least known for being sexually promiscuous. And so this woman sneaks up behind Jesus who is reclining at the table, and she begins to wash his feet with her tears. And then she, she takes this expensive ointment and, and anoints Jesus' feet with it right in the middle of this formal dinner party. What this woman was doing was incredibly social socially taboo. This was just something you do not do. In fact, the act that she is performing in the first century even could have been considered an erotic one. A woman in the first century just didn't take their their hair down. They kept it up. And you only took your hair down as a woman when you were in the bedroom. And so this woman begins to wash Jesus' feet with her own hair. And she impulsively takes this expensive ointment and anoints Jesus' feet with us. And the strangest thing is not only is this woman in this room interrupting this dinner party doing this, but she's weeping and crying as she's doing it. Now, what can be said of this woman? Well, She probably didn't know much about Jesus, but all she knew and all she heard is that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And imagine her desperation to do such a thing that led her to take part in this scandalous act of love and sacrifice, even though it would expose her to so much ridicule and mocking. This was a woman who has hit rock bottom a woman who had nowhere else to go. So she throws herself at the feet of Jesus, showing love in the only way she knew how, through sensuality. And this sinful woman is broken. She knows she's a sinner. She knows what she's done behind closed doors with men. Her memories haunted her, her guilt and sin always before her. She was at the end of her rope, she had nowhere to go, no one to turn to, nothing else to live for. So she throws herself upon the only man whom she thinks she can trust. And in her desperation and her shame and her guilt and her hopelessness, she falls at the feet of Jesus. And there's no better place to fall. So who are you? Are you this woman in the story? Are you this morning enslaved? to the memories of your past sin? Do they haunt you? Do they keep you up at night when you try to put your head on the pillow? Is there no one in your life who loves you? Is there no one in this life you can go to? Are you surrounded by the black darkness of despair? And if that's you this morning, I have good news. You can connect with this woman and you can go to Jesus. You can go to Jesus. She, she this woman's just like you indeed she is just like all of us and she throws herself at jesus acknowledging her need and what a risk this woman took what a sweet risk this woman took breaking all social etiquette all social boundaries she threw herself on a rabbi a rabbi she had only heard of not knowing how he would react i mean imagine the risk involved in this. Would Jesus rebuke her if she did this? Would he threaten her? Would he cast her away? Would he refuse to love her? However, as we read about this woman, the true scandal of this dinner party is not the woman's action, but the true scandal of this dinner party is the response of Jesus. That's what really begins to to get the Pharisees all wound up because Jesus's response is what really shocks the host because Jesus doesn't stop the woman. He just lets her continue groveling and weeping at his feet. And rather than, than kicking the woman off and rebuking her and rejecting her, Jesus allows this woman to continue. And this is what really throws the dinner party guests for a loop. I mean, perhaps they could understand a prostitute barging in and doing this. After all, she's a sinner. Doesn't know any better, Right. So they think, but Jesus, this prophet allowing this woman to do this, that that is unthinkable. How in the world could a respected religious leader, a man who claims to be a prophet, how could he allow such a thing to happen to him? And this leads us to see Simon, we get his name later on in the passage, this host of the dinner party and his reaction to the events. And that leads us to talk about the Pharisee, the second character in this story. We are told in verse 39 what Simon was really thinking to himself as he was watching this. He says in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, not only is Simon disgusted by this woman, but he is disgusted that Jesus would allow this woman to continue to do what she's doing. Simon then begins to even question, maybe Jesus really isn't a prophet, Maybe he really isn't all that big of a deal. If, he, if he's the kind of guy that would let something like this happen, maybe he's not the prophet we thought he was. However, Jesus is not any ordinary man. He is the son of God. He is God himself who defies the world's expectations. So Jesus, reading Simon's mind, because Jesus can do that, right? He's God. He realizes that Simon is not doing so well. He's disturbed, he's confused, he's conflicted. So so Jesus says, Simon, I've, I've got something to say to you. And Simon says, okay, say it, say it, teacher. And Je- Jesus then begins to tell Simon a, a very short, very brief parable of two debtors. And the parable is pretty simple. Easy to grasp, one moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Both men in the story could not repay their debt, so the moneylender forgave both. And then Jesus, as he normally does, concludes with a piercing question for Simon. And he says, now which of these two people in the story, in the parable, which of them will love the moneylender more for forgiving the debt? And Simon answers rightly, as plainly is the answer, and he supposes, well, I I guess the one who had the larger debt loved him more. And then Jesus ruthlessly (laughs) but lovingly exposes Simon's hypocrisy. And it's astonishing, isn't it? It's astonishing. Rather than rebuking the woman, Jesus rebukes his host. (laughs) This sinful woman, Jesus says, this sinful woman has shown more hospitality and love than Simon ever did. And Jesus begins to layer by layer peel back Simon's heart in front of all of his friends, in front of this woman, and show... That Simon has a hard heart. That Simon didn't really love Jesus. Simon was just using Jesus to increase his own reputation. Simon is far more concerned with his prestige, with what he's thought about by others. Simon is the self righteous Pharisee who does not know what it means to love God, and Jesus helps give us the answer why. And so Jesus sums up this in verse 47. Look at verse 47 says therefore i tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little so why does simon not show extravagant love to jesus like this woman does why does this woman love jesus so much more than simon appears to be and it's because simon does not see himself as much of a sinner that's why he doesn't think he has much sin if any I mean, as a Pharisee, he's clearly not like this woman, right? He hadn't whored himself out like this woman had. He was a Pharisee. He was a man of the law. He was a man of morals, of principles. He was better, so he thought, than she was. After all, he had kept the law. He had been obedient to God and to his commands. So Simon does not see that he has any need at all for a Savior, and certainly he doesn't think he needs forgiveness, certainly not from Jesus. And know oh, how wretched is the heart of a Pharisee. How wretched it is. How sad it is. For they are blind, blind to the depths of their own sin and the wretchedness of their own hearts. They they tinker away with legalism, thinking they can they can earn God's favor, but their busyness only distracts them from examining their own hearts. They seem, they appear, they look, they look close to God, they look like they have a good relationship with God outwardly, but but inwardly, their hearts are desperately wicked and fooled. Like whitewashed tombs, they are clean and spotless on the outside, but inwardly, they are rotting and decaying on the inside. They're hypocrites. That's what they are. Self-righteous in all they're doing, obeying the law, not out of love for God, but simply to boost their own egos and pride. They think they are sinless, all the while they ignore the most condemnable sins of all, the sin of pride. So is Simon a little sinner? (laughs) Not at all. He's a great sinner, just as much, if not more so than this woman. But yet, his own self-righteousness blinds him to the actual state of his soul. So again, I ask, who are you in this account? Are you Simon? I suggest that most of us, including myself, have a lot more of Simon in our hearts than we care to admit. Many of us in this room have have grown up in, in Sunday school, going to church every time the doors were open. Unfortunately for many of us, our devotion throughout our lives has not been to Christ, but to religious tradition, just like a Pharisee would. And unfortunately for many of us, our obedience has only been to fuel our own self-righteousness, not our dependence upon Christ. And rather than becoming aware of our need for Christ, Pharisees think that they're too good for Jesus. They don't need Jesus. So as we think about today, who are these Pharisees amongst us? Unfortunately, they are found in our churches scattered across our nation. Many of us, including myself, have a tendency to a Pharisaical heart. So, have you become so captivated by tradition, by ritual, that you have ignored the needs of the world around us? When you come across a sinner in your life, how do you respond? Do you look down in hateful judgment to sinners, homosexual? the gender confused, the adulterer and liar, the thief and the fool? Do you despise those who spend every evening at the bar drinking away their sorrows? Do you detest the poor who waste their paycheck on a wad of lottery tickets every Friday? Do you ignore the homeless, the orphan, the widow? Do you hate sinners or do you love sinners? So who are you? Do you have the heart of a Pharisee? And what about our church? How will Redemption Church be known in this community, in the city of Wilson? Will we be known as the legalistic, self-righteous, judgmental church only for the best of Christians who have their lives together? Or will we be known as a haven for sinners, where compassion is shown and the hope of the gospel is shared? Will redemption be an Ivy League church only for the best and the brightest of Christians? Or will it be like a community college, (laughs) accepting of all and instructing to all? And I pray that, that you share my heart's desire to reach people in this community from every social class, every income level, every education level, every skin color, every sin. And my prayer is that Redemption Church would be filled with people who are unlike me in a lot of different ways. But yet what we have in common is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we become a place like this? How do we become a place where, where those on the margins of society are welcomed into our church, into our community? And it's, it's quite simple, really. We go out and go to them, right? It's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. So, so let me tell you a hard word. We have to get outside of our comfort zone. Jesus' ministry was not to the religious people, usually, but the majority of his ministry was to the outcasts of our society. And as we hope to grow as a church, as we hope to make disciples, as we hope to be obedient to the Great Commission, It means we're going to have to reach out to those on the margins and share the good news of Christ. And this means that we want to reach the kind of people who shop at Target, but also the kind of people who shop at Dollar General. This means not only reaching those who live on this side of the railroad tracks, but on the other side of the railroad tracks. It means reaching those not only in the country club, but also in the trailer parks. It means reaching all people people that might not look like us, might not talk like us, they might not dress like us. But we must learn to show the love of Christ to all people, even those who are enslaved to the worst of sins. And we must share with them the glorious hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will forgive them and save them and accept them if they would repent and believe in him. You see, you have people in your life who are broken, who are lost, are confused. We all have them in our lives, and we shouldn't shun these people. We shouldn't ignore them because they're problems, and they're awkward, and they're inconvenient, and they're messy. You see, a lot of us are like Simon. We want our community perfect and pristine. We want a nice dinner party with no interruptions where everything goes right according to plan, but true gospel community is messy. It has interruptions. There's inconvenience and even a little bit awkward at times. But yet this woman was a great gift to Simon. He might not have realized it. He thought she was an inconvenience. This lady's ruining my dinner party with Jesus. She's making me look bad in front of all my friends. But yet this awkward interruption of this sinful woman instructed Simon more than the intellectual conversation taking place. Because this uninvited dinner guest exposed his true heart. It lifted up the blinders of his eyes so Jesus could show him who he really was. So sure, inviting people, broken people into your life is going to be awkward. It's going to be messy. However, these broken people have a lot to teach us about what it means to follow Christ. Because whether we realize it or not, we are all broken. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We're all in need of redemption. So we pray that, that through the, the entrance As broken people are are connected to the community of redemption, we pray that that broken people like us would, would hear the gospel, that they would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must point them to Christ, the Redeemer and Savior of our souls, who provides forgiveness by his blood alone. And that leads us to consider the third person in this story, the Savior. The Savior, verse 48 through 50. So the question remains, we've considered the woman, we've considered the Pharisee. Now let's consider Christ Jesus, the Savior. So as if this dinner party couldn't go more off the rails or become even more controversial, Jesus does something that's even more astonishing, even more controversial. Look at what he says in verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Then the debate really begins to break out around the table. Right? All these Pharisees gathered together and they began to look at themselves and said, did Jesus just say what I thought I heard he say? Did he just, of his own authority, tell this woman that her sins are forgiven? Who does that? What, what prophet says that? What teacher says that? And as we know, Jesus is no ordinary prophet. He's no ordinary teacher. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he is the only God, the one true God who has authority and power and grace to look this woman in the eye and to forgive her of her sins. And what this woman longed for more than anything else, more than anything else was forgiveness, was acceptance. And Jesus gives it to her. He gives it to her. And Jesus tells us that what saved this woman was her faith was her faith. She had placed her faith in Jesus. And on the grounds of her faith, she was accepted and made righteous before God. You see, just as this woman was forgiven of her sins by trusting in Jesus, so too you and I, we are forgiven by placing our trust in Jesus. It's how we're accepted. Whether you have the heart of the Pharisee Simon this morning or whether you are this sinful woman, Christ offers forgiveness to all who would receive him. After all, this was Jesus' ultimate mission, to save sinners. As we read in Luke this morning, to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus would go to the cross, and Jesus would be crucified, providing payment and atonement for our sins. And at the cross, Jesus paid the sins not only for the sinful woman, but also for Simon the Pharisee. Jesus has done this for both the sinners and the Pharisees among us, all of us. And he has laid down his life for you and me, and we must respond like this woman does to Jesus. She gets it right. Simon gets it wrong. We must fall at the feet of Jesus Christ, putting our faith and trust in him as the only hope and Savior of our souls. So who is this Jesus? He's the Savior of sinners. Who alone has the power to forgive sins? So, which person in this narrative best reflects your own heart? With the Spirit's help, ask yourself that question: Are you like Simon the Pharisee, the self-righteous Pharisee? If you if so, don't don't think of yourself this morning as a little sinner. You're not a little sinner. You're a great sinner. And so, repent. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your pride, and put all your hope in Jesus. Become a fool like the sinful woman and throw yourself upon the feet of the Savior in desperation. This morning, are you like the sinful woman? Have you reached the end of your your rope? Do you know not where else to turn? Are you plagued by guilt and feel all alone in this world? And like the Pharisee, do the same. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus like the sinful woman did. Jesus loves you. And he has died on the cross so that he might forgive you of your sins and so that you might become a child of God. So come this morning and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Or are you like Jesus? Are you tender-hearted and loving as he? Do you have compassion and mercy for the lost? Are you accepting of those who are on the margins? No matter where we are, most of us are probably somewhere in between a lot of these three characters, but may we all strive to have the same love for people as Jesus had. Jesus shows us here in Luke 7 what community on mission looks like. This powerful testimony of the gospel rings clearest in people's lives in the context of humble and sweet gospel community. So as we share the good news with sinners in our lives, may we welcome the broken and may we point them to the savior of our souls. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, who gives forgiveness and grace, Lord, not just to the sinful women in this world and sinful men, but Lord, to self-righteous, pride, prideful, arrogant Pharisees. Father, we pray that by your Spirit's power that you would illuminate our own hearts, that you would not allow our sin to continue to blind us, but Lord, by your Spirit, would you probe and bring to our attention the areas in our life that need to be repented of father if our church if redemption church will be a church that reaches the lost in this community lord we must be individuals who have the same compassion and mercy for the lost as jesus jesus had father i pray that by your great grace and mercy that you would form such a sweet and humble, gospel-centered community and redemption church that the those on the margins, those at the lost, would see our love for one another, that they would see the gospel on display in our lives, and that they would perk up as we begin to share with them the source of our unity, the source of our community, the source of our fellowship, who is Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would do this in our church for the glory of your name, and Lord, that you would save sinners. And Lord, that you might use us as a powerful vessel to see the gospel advance in miraculous and supernatural ways in this city. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.